Welcome back to Physique Science. I'm your host, Lane Norton, with my co-host, Sohi Lee. And today, we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Abby Smith-Ryan with us. Um, Dr. Abby, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having us, having me. Hey, you're welcome. So, you are a professor of exercise science at UNC Chapel Hill, is that correct? You got it. So, we usually like to start off these shows with all of our guests usually lift Actually, they have to lift. That's kind of a prerequisite. It's a requirement to be on a podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's uh, in the form it said, do you even lift? Um, <laughs> so so I'm, we're always interested in like what took somebody from being an athlete or a meathead to the science route. So do you want to share with us a little bit of your athletic background and like what was the switch for you? Um, or I guess the switch that went off in your head for you to actually consider, you know, kind of a scientific academic career? Sure, that's a great question. I, I haven't thought about this in a long time. Um, I think I've always been an inner meathead, even when I was like 10. Um, I have a big brother who played football, so I remember doing RDLs when I was 90 pounds in the gym um, when I was little. And I think from there that started my like passion for lifting. Um, but, you know, it's just funny as a female, even, you know, a long time ago, you're, you're thought or trained to just do cardio and so I actually was an endurance athlete um, I ran cross country and track in college um, but I still had this huge passion for lifting so you can imagine how much that clashed with my coaches when I wanted to do power lifts and you know <laughs> uh, were they not uh, at the time were they not programming any strength training for the track athletes at the time for females we had some strength training but um, it was very much um, let's just say that the coaches kind of started to listen to me, which was kind of fun. Like oh, wow. we were able to progressively change some of the stuff we did in the weight room based on some of the knowledge that I gained as an undergraduate, um, which is kind of cool. And so we were doing strength training, but by no means was it, um, very effective. Sure. <laughs> Uh, and so from there, as an athlete, as an endurance athlete, um, I actually had nine stress fractures during my collegiate career. And you can imagine that comes from overtraining and wow. undernutrition. And so that really stimulated my interest in kind of the science, nutrition, like why was this happening? And let's find a way to fix it. There's no way that, you know, all of this should happen with appropriate training and nutrition. And so... Um, my first research, I was able to, you know, answer a question or ask a question and answer it. And that kind of just sparked me into the science realm. And then I just kind of put my head down and moved on from there. Did you know that this was the route that you wanted to go in? Or what? It, when you went to college, what was your first um, intended major or area of interest for your career path? Yeah, that's a good question. I always wanted to be a doctor, an MD, ah. not the PhD, the wrong kind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, but I realized that the education and, you know, no, no offense to any doctors out there, they're great, but um, the, the knowledge and the education was very much uh, remember and regurgitate, and I really wanted mm. to apply the, the knowledge, and so I decided to get my master's, and from there, um, I studied under Jeff Stout at the University of Oklahoma, and it really just sparked my fire and, and wanting to do more research. And so I decided to get a PhD and, you know, even say at this time, like, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, you know, I'm a faculty member here and I'm doing research and some cool stuff, but I like the idea that I can still do or be whatever I want. And so I don't know if this is what I'll always do, but for now it's fun to, to run your lab and train young, young minds. 
That's very cool. So you've been on the academic path for a long time. Yeah, I've been at, um, I mean, yeah, I did my master's PhD and then I've been at UNC. Uh, this is the start of my sixth year. So time flies, but yep, I've been in the academic world for a little bit. Cool. I still consider myself relatively young in my career. <laughs> cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, you brought up something a little bit ago, Abby. And uh, for those who don't know, Abby and I worked together uh, when she was preparing for a, a figure show. And which is pretty cool. Again, she has competed in physique competition and is a professor. That's pretty sweet. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously I'm going to, I have an interest in this research, so I'm going to bring it up, but, um, you were kind of like one of the most extreme cases of somebody who's metabolically adapted that I'd ever, uh, worked with, um, just based on the activity level you had to do and how low on calories you had to get, uh, to get, to get stage lean. And, um, that was even after, uh, we reversed you to pretty high calorie level actually. And I've actually noticed this with people who have been really restricted in the past that some of them can get their calories up really high and maintain their weight, but they still have to get down pretty darn low in order to, to get, to lose fat. Uh, it's a pretty interesting phenomenon. Um, yeah. So can you talk about like your, your history? Uh, we discussed it pretty, pretty extensively, but you seem to have a pretty extensive diet history, correct? Well, yeah, and I don't, you know, the funny thing about it is um, I, I wouldn't call it, you know, I mean, I think as females, we're taught to kind of restrict our calories, just, uh, to, you know, to begin with. But I think it was a combination of being an endurance athlete mm. um, and being a female. So if you think of like physiologically, um, it's just incredible what the human body does. So, for example, as an endurance athlete, you, you train to become very metabolically efficient. Like, you, your goal is to be efficient so mm -hmm. you can be faster and, you know, lighter and, and run fast. Um, and so if you combine that with even, you know, a slight hypocaloric intake or uh, restriction in calories, yeah, I think. Um, and then, you know, throw on top being a female, it's amazing. Like women are designed, um, to kind of hang on to everything you give it. And so, um, I, I think it's like the perfect storm. If you, and, and so if you look at a lot of, um, females that do lots of cardio and restrict calories at all, like that, that group is going to have a hard time, um, changing body composition and, and modifying, uh, fat mass. Um, just because of our innate physiological characteristics, which is really fascinating to me, and there's not a lot of research on it. Yeah, there's hardly any research on it, actually. And uh, I know we wrote a review paper on basically what research is out there, along with your graduate student, Eric Trexler. Um, do you guys have any ideas of where you, if you'd like to expand that or, or do any more research on that? Or where, where are your current interests in research lying right now? Yeah, you know, I have um, I have a lot of interest, which is nice to have your own lab. But one thing that I am doing, so part of it, and it ties into, I have a big interest in high-intensity interval training um, in both kind of healthy populations and overweight and obese. And part of my interest lies in that area because of what it does to the metabolic pathways. Um, although, you know, it's good for body composition, there's a reason for that. And it, and it really kind of shakes things up and stimulates the mitochondria in a way that you couldn't, um, doing normal aerobic activity or even resistance training. Interesting. Um, how, yeah. how, can you define high intensity for us? Like how, what, what, what protocol are you guys running? Yeah, that's a good question. So I know, Elaine, I know you like to use like the 30 seconds or 20 seconds, which is a great protocol, but, 
Um, it's a little bit tough to do on your own to actually mm-hmm. get the intensity high enough. Um, and so I like to use a lot of the um, 10 minute, 10 sets of one minute on one minute off. Mm-hmm. Um, but then throw in actually some longer intervals, like a two minute on one minute off. Mm-hmm. Especially for the group of people that, like, if you were to have any sort of diet or endurance history, because um, you're able to kind of, like, jolt the system a little bit better. Is there a specific uh, cardio modality that you recommend for the high-intensity interval training, Dr. Abby? That's a great question. Okay, so even when I was prepping for a show, like, uh, you know, I did mostly bike thinking... I don't know. I think I just trusted Lane and said, you know, let's just not be a scientist here and do do what you're told. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think because of my history as a runner, my favorite and best way my body responds is with a with a running mode mm-hmm. because it's more total body. Um, but I think the nice thing, and you know, what we've shown a lot with the science is that you really can do any mode. Um, so just kind of funny backstory, like my husband has some back problems. Um, and we have him doing some intervals on the stair mill. So, like, you can do it any mode you want. As long as you can get the intensity high enough. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that's all relative based mm, on the person. Okay. Another Great. really good one is, like, the rowing ergometer. Because, again, it's more of a full body. Yes. I like that one. Well, I like to hate it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once you get uh, it, now, right? do, you, do you find that maybe there's less, and this is, there's no direct data that I know of looking at this, but what I seem to be able to infer from kind of, I call it fringe data, is that perhaps with the high-intensity interval training, you don't get quite the same adaptation. You know, if you look at low-intensity cardio or steady-state cardio, um, typically what you do is you get like an initial, you'll get an additional drop of weight, and then your body just kind of adjusts to that, and then it gets difficult to drop anymore. Just now that becomes your new baseline. Um and so is, from what I seem to see was it seems like I think high-intensity interval training can still have the same effect, but I think it takes longer. I don't know if there's any direct uh, evidence examining that. Do you know that? No, I actually – so you think – you're talking specifically like for weight loss? Yeah, for weight loss. So that the, the metabolic rate tends to adjust – um, to you know, steady state or cardiovascular exercise, just by kind of lowering itself, and whether that's through you know uh, baseline metabolic rate or NEAT, um, I think we we tend to think that a lot of the adjustments that the metabolism makes while in calorically restricted or or high uh, activity is through NEAT. Um, you do seem to have some kind of drop in metabolic rate that just where that now becomes your new normal, like let's say I, I add in 30 minutes of cardio three times a week. Mm-hmm. And um, after a couple of weeks, like I would lose some weight and after a couple of weeks then I would stabilize. Mm-hmm. Um, that be- now becomes my new normal, my, my, my maintenance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would have to add more. Um, it seems like, at least in my experience from working with people, that with the high intensity interval training, it takes a little bit longer for yeah. – that to that to happen, um, but I don't know if any data examining that. I don't know if you've observed the same thing or, or anything uh, like that. Yeah, indirectly, and I think the thing that we see is that interval training is one of the only ways to actually increase lean mass with cardiovascular activity. So I think one thing you see with kind of low intensity, moderate intensity cardio is that you lose lean mass too, and even if your diet's on par, let's say you maintain. Um, with intervals or hit training, you tend to see a, a pretty 
pretty good increase in lean mass. Um, mm. And then you can also switch it up enough that your body won't kind of adjust as quickly. Is this so only so long as you're not in a caloric deficit? No, I mean, that's the nice thing is, so now there's not a lot of data. I'd have to, you know, obviously you're not going to put on a lot of lean mass if you're in a calorie deficit, but um, right. you'll at least be able to maintain the stimulus from interval training and just the way it stimulates muscle protein synthesis and some of the other uh, metabolic components is that it, it shows that it does increase lean mass, whereas most cardio does. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, we're going to take a quick break, get our sponsors paid, and uh, we'll come back. You're listening to Physique Science, and we have uh, Dr. Abby Smith-Ryan with us. Hey, guys. Lane here. Well, you all know how much I love variety in my diet. I can't stand eating the same bland food every single day. That's why I love www.myoatmeal.com. It's an amazing website where you can go and customize oatmeal. I know, I know, I know. Why would I want to go customize oatmeal? I can eat it right out of the bag. Well, let me tell you why. Myoatmeal.com has 22 billion combinations of flavors and ingredients. You heard me right. 22 billion combinations. Whether you're picking out a pre-made blend or making your own customized blend, they have all kinds of flavors. Want red velvet cake? No problem. Snickerdoodle? You can make it happen. Butter rum? Oh yeah. Cheesecake? You can get it done. And you have all kinds of additives you can add. Apples, raisins, pears, nuts, all kinds of seeds. And you can sweeten it any way you want. Need to eat gluten-free? No problem. They've got it. The best part of it all? The macros are listed as you're customizing your blend, and they change depending on which ingredients you add. Eating a little bit lower carb? No problem. Choose ingredients that make your carb count lower. Need more protein? Add higher protein ingredients. You can customize your blend to make it almost any breakdown that you want, and the prices and macros change as you change your blend. So go on over to www.myoatmeal.com and check out some of the blends that have already been made or be adventurous and make your own. That's myoatmeal.com. Check it out, guys. Hey, guys. Many of you out there know I spend a lot of time bagging on bad coaches. And certainly, there's more than enough of those to go around. But a lot of times, people ask me who I do recommend. Well, one person we can recommend wholeheartedly is Paul Ravella of Pro Physique. Paul has received more referrals from me over the last two years than any other coach, and with good reason. Paul is competent, professional, caring, and carries himself with a lot of integrity. If you hire Paul, you're going to be getting the very best at a great value. Paul is also one of my closest personal friends, and I can say with absolute certainty I feel 100% comfortable with referring my closest friends and family to him because I've done that. Paul Ravella of ProPhysique.com. Check him out, guys.
Hey guys, you know me, and you know I love cooking up macro-friendly option meals. But sometimes when I'm always on the go, that's just not an option. So when I'm on the go or can't cook a meal, I love Quest Bars. You know I love protein and fiber, and these are packed with 20 grams of high-quality protein and super high in fiber. And it's easy to stay on target when you've got Quest Bars that you can bring with you anywhere. They're delicious compared to other bars that taste like bricks and leave you feeling gassy and bloated. So pick up a bar of Quest Bars today at questnutrition.com, GNC, and Vitamin Shop. Also, follow them on Instagram at questnutrition and youtube.com slash questnutrition for great recipe ideas to keep you on your goals but eating delicious. Hey guys, one of the things that's always on my mind is how can I give back to the industry that has done so much for me? That's why we formed the BioLane Foundation. The BioLane Foundation is a philanthropic initiative to raise money for grad school level research that is going to contribute to the fitness industry. And 100% of all your donations will be paid out to students. If you'd like to donate, you can go to BioLane.com, click on the About tab, and click on BioLane Foundation, and you can put your donation in through there. Or, if you're a student and you'd like to apply for a grant, go to BioLane.com, click the About tab, BioLane Foundation, and you can find the applications online there. Thank you guys so much, and I'm looking forward to all the great research that comes from these donations. You're listening to Physique Science Radio with Lane Norton and Sohi Lee. If you like what you hear and you'd like to learn more about us, read some of our articles, please visit my website at www.biolane.com and Sohi's website at sohifit.com. Thanks, guys. We appreciate you listening and hope to hear more from you in the future. All right. Welcome back, guys. Just a little bit ago, we were talking a little bit about uh, Dr. Abby's prep experience with Lane and how she had a hard time with how her body was was not really responding very well to um, the, the, the prep program that she was on. And I know that this the details of her prep will probably be of interest to um, many of our readers and listeners. And I know I have some clients who are going through this as well, where they, they, they feel like they're doing everything right as far as following the program, pushing it hard in the gym, but the body is just not responding. So um, Dr. Abby, can you go over more of your background in of, of disordered eating and or crash dieting and how you think that influenced your prep and also where you are now in terms of your physical health? Oh, gosh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, I think so. Um, if I, I guess my history is a good place to start. So I, I never had like an eating disorder per se, but I definitely restricted my calories. Uh, beyond what they should have been and that I think was driven by just being a naive young runner like I wanted to be faster and lighter and so um, I definitely I couldn't tell you how many calories I consumed but um, it wasn't enough let's just put it that way so for you it's more a performance driven uh, yeah interesting but I mean it's all related right like Mm -hmm, we all right I wanted to be lighter and faster and I mean yeah, leaner, right? So it, it's all kind of the same route. Um, and, and then, like, it took a while. Like, you know, we always wish we knew then what we know now. Like, it took a while for me to realize. And, you know, that we're talking about, like, 15, you know, 18 years ago. Like, you didn't really know that you needed fuel to perform, right? Like, you that knowledge wasn't there. Um, and so 
when I started to learn more about that, it made a big difference in obviously composition and, um, and just change over time. So just to put this in perspective, I think when I was a runner in high school, I maybe weighed a hundred pounds. Um, and then by the time I got to college and just kind of started to figure out some of the nutrition, like being able to, you know, run and eat and, you know, put on lean mass, I think I was probably 125 pounds and I was still pretty lean. You know, I was probably, I don't know, 15, 16% body fat. So it's not like I put on the freshman 15 or, and, you know, of fat mass. Um, and then, you know, just as I've been, become more of a lifter, just to put it in perspective, I think when I was prepping and even now, um, I'm, you know, about 140, 145, mm-hmm. um, I'm probably, I had a baby about a year ago, but my, my okay. body fat is probably, I don't know, around like 18, 19%. Um, so it's not like I've put on 45 pounds of fat mass over the last, you know, 15 years. And I think that's important to realize too, like, your body goes and ebbs and flows with different life components, right? And, you know, if, if you've been training for a long time, you tend to, it tends to accumulate. And you guys know that, right? Working with clients. Mm-hmm. Um, so my history, I think, has had some of an impact on my, um, on my prep. But honestly, I think it, a lot of it was driven, um, and there's some science on this, more of the psychological um, data. And so, Zoe, I know you have an interest in that. But the, the crazy thing I found, too, is that, um, and I don't do this much anymore, but before I could, like, go all day and not think about food. Like, I, mm. you know, it was almost like this stimuli where you would get more energy. Um, and there's some interesting female data on that. Like how, how, anorexics actually talk about that, that they yeah. get like a, a high from caloric deficit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, know. which is so crazy, right? And so, I cannot imagine that. It's I like, go, like this euphoria. It's weird. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, give me food. (laughs) So it's like, I think there's just, and you know, I don't think it's just a female thing, but I I do, there's a lot of interesting um, allusion to science, although the science is not good enough there yet. And that's kind of one of my aims is to really shed some light on how the female body is different and how it responds differently to, you know, different exercise and kind of nutrition adaptations. Very cool. Um, You know, you you brought up the, the stress point and you, I think this is a big psychology thing, and this is one of the reasons I'm a fan of flexible dieting. You know, I don't think it's appropriate for everybody. I used to say that's for everybody, and now I, I realize it's probably not appropriate for everybody. But for a large majority of people, because I always tell people, if I put you in a room and there's four doors, and I say, you can go anywhere in this room you want, you can do anything you want, you can open up any door you want, but for the love of God, do not go behind door number four. <laughs> you can do it, but you, if you open that door, God help you, you know? But you're going to sit in there and stew about door number four. Like you don't even want you – know, like the other rooms can be filled with gold and candy and whatever and you don't even care. Like you want what's behind door number four even though it could be like a, a green-eyed monster. You know what I mean? Like you just, you just don't care, you know? Um, and that's human psychology. Like as soon as – I remember my first prep. I never craved junk food. As soon as I started dieting, like literally within weeks, it was like right. I was thinking about junk food. And it's like – I was like, what the, what the hell? This makes no sense. You know? And it's like – you know, you want what you can't have, and it's yeah, for sure. It's, it's and it, you see it on the back end too when you when you're done with a prep, like all of a sudden you could be full, like you've eaten enough to be full, and you feel compelled to eat even more because it's mm-hmm. like I have got to get all this food in that I did not eat. Like, <laughs> like, and if you look at the calorie intake of some p- competitors, 
if you average out that that week post show with the week pre show, it's oh, probably boy. about a net caloric balance of zero. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. probably like right at right at maintenance. <laughs> so I think you're onto something there with psychology, and I always tell people, um, I don't think you can separate psychology from physiology. Mm-hmm. I think we always like to talk Absolutely. about things like they're separate, but they're really not. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Dr. Abby, for your prep, how, or maybe Lane, you'll remember, one of you, how low did you have to drop your calories relative to your body weight, and what was your training or exercise regimen like? (laughs) It was low. And how did you respond? (laughs) I think it was, like, for a short time, it was almost, it was under 1,000 for sure, and I think under 900 for a very short period of time, right? Were there any refeeds or high-carb days or anything like that? Yeah. Um, we had some high card days. I do remember though for a long time, um, and part of this I think goes back, you know, I didn't mention like I'm always been a big fan of, of lower carb intake. And so I for think. For females that, specifically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think just for day, day to day living, especially for females. And so I think that screwed me over a little bit. Um, I think some days I was at like 30 to 35 grams of carbohydrate. Ouch. <laughs> so. Yeah. So it just had become adjusted that low carb life, that low carb intake. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I, I think people ask me all the time. They're like, you know, uh, one of the things Eric Helms and I are kind of a fan of is like if you're, we, we have levels of flexible dieting, and one of them is you hit your protein, you hit your calories, then you fill in carbs and fats however you want. Because yeah. if you look out there for data, there's really not data that shows that if you have if calories are equated, carbs versus fats make a difference. That you can't really find that data. That being said, I have noticed in coaching people that some people do better on higher fat and some people do better on higher carb. Yeah. And I don't know, that's, that's completely anecdotal, but I have observed it. And so that would be interesting if we could figure out like what traits, you know, so you could go to a, you know, so you could go to say, shameless plug, Avatar Nutrition <laughs> and, and know, hey, I want to do, do a higher fat diet and it can generate that for you because you know that you're, you're going to function better on that. I wonder if we're going to be able to determine like what traits like you can fill out a questionnaire, take blood, whatever, and say, okay, you're going to do better on this kind of diet versus this kind of diet. That's actually where I see nutrition going in like you know the next 20 years. I think we'll have that technology. There are companies right now, by the way, who will sell you these things and tell the, tell you that they can tell you this. They don't know, so don't buy any of that stuff. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely like a genetic component to it, and there's some research in that you know area growing, but. Um, it would be great if you could figure that out from a questionnaire. <laughs> but that, yeah, people respond differently, I think, to different interventions. Yeah. Uh, I was expl- I actually was on a podcast today for On It, um, and they I was talking about Gaussian distributions and how if you take a population and you subject them to any treatment, you know, about 60% of people are going to fall within, like, uh, the, the average range, right? And then the rest of people are going to be out in the edges and 5% of people are going to be like on the extreme edges, right? They're going to be outliers. And I think what I always tell people, science is a big blunt instrument. So we should always start our recommendations with the average, right? Like what the average response is. But then we need to massage it to figure out what works best for that individual. I like that, that term, massage it. Yeah, <laughs> massage it, you know. No, well, uh, it's really getting to know who you're working with, right? Like I think even – just asking the right questions and because you know or I think it falls on on the client right letting making sure they disclose the right information can help um, come to like an appropriate plan definitely I mean I always tell people as I said science is a big big blunt instrument coaching is an art form mm-hmm. um, and I think that's hundred percent correct and yeah how I coach I now is much is di- an art form too Lane. 
<laughs> oh, I, I agree. I agree. I Okay, you're, now you're going to argue semantics with me. But uh, scientific data, the results, and how we use those is a big blood instrument. But um, yes, definitely definitely the actual conducting of science is an art form. That is that is 100% for sure. Um now, your, your graduate student, actually, here comes another shameless plug incoming, uh, Eric Trexler actually won the first BioLane Foundation grant ever, um, and that was to basically monitor people pre and post contest and look at, uh, just kind of monitor them and see what happens. Did you, did you guys get any interesting data out of that? Yeah, so we're writing that data up now, and Eric presented that this summer. Um, yeah, it is interesting. Like, there's a number of parameters that he'll present, but... Um, found some interesting body composition components and um, some hormonal changes, which I think you know goes on, but a lot of competitors don't realize, like, what is happening, right? And so um, I think it'll be a good translational tool, and he'll actually talk about some of that at your camp uh, at the end of the week. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. You hear that? Come to the VIP camp. You get the information <laughs> several years for everybody else. I always, Actually, I always joke. We joke about that, but it's true because – at our first camp five years ago, Jeremy Lenicky was talking about blood flow restriction, and Mike Zordos was talking about you know BFR, and Dom is talking about keto. keto I'm sorry, Zordos is talking about DUP. Dom's talking about keto, and now what's hot right now? DUP, yeah. keto, mm-hmm. and BFR. You know, so yeah. um, it's pretty cool to see how the camp is so far out in front of everything. Are they, are they coming back all of them to VIP camp this year too? Uh, Jeremy couldn't make it. He's actually in Europe right now. If you follow his Instagram, you can see him. He just uh, he's posting pictures of like pretty much every like famous place in Europe. So cool. he, uh, I think he's getting everything he can out of it because he hates to fly. So I think the, this was like a one deal for him. He was like, I'm going over there one time and that's it. <laughs> so no, but um, yeah, I, I saw some of Eric's data that he presented at the ISSN conference, and it was really interesting. And especially like just the, you know, he showed the different data points mm-hmm. and just the individual variability amongst individuals is enormous. Yeah. I don't think people yeah. realize that. Like, so if we, if we, what, what are generated and published are means, right? But if you look at the data, like, you know, for one person, an intervention may have actually made them worse. And even though the overall mean says, hey, it makes you 20% better for like a few people, it makes them worse. You know, people mm-hmm. don't realize that. And, and we'll uh, we'll publish the the individual responses like that is um, and a, a lot of the science is moving in that direction, which is a good thing because it is important to see you know responders, non-responders, or just the variability in, in the people. Are you allowed to talk about the details of that study, Dr. Abby, or not yet? I would say not yet. Like we okay. can talk about what's published in the abstract, um, but it will hopefully come soon. I gotcha. Yeah. Made possible by the BioLane Foundation. <laughs> yes, <made possible. laughs> um, no, that's really cool. And, and Eric, actually at NSCA had another interesting study, if you don't mind uh, me bringing that up. Were you involved with that fat-free mass index study? Oh, yeah. He's my student, Lane. I'm involved with anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I also uh, Abby is, Abby is, for you, too. So. <laughs> Abby is getting after me today. Uh, um no, well, it's just, you know, sometimes graduate students decide they have something they kind of want to do on the side, and the professor may go, eh, I'm not interested in that. But uh, obviously, you seem to be very involved with everything, which is what a good professor and advisor mm-hmm. does. Um, yeah, the fat-free cool fat mass index is really Yeah. For those that aren't familiar, uh, fat-free mass index is basically something that 
it was the popular use of it now is to kind of say, hey, who's natty and who's not natty? Um, because it's been proposed that people with over a fat-free mass index of 25 are likely on steroids. And, um, but that, that originally... That pretty old, right? Like it was, it was quite right. wild. Yeah, that was the study that was done in, I think it was 96 or 99. And they took people who were kind of, they'd been in the gym for at least two years and they analyzed what their fat-free mass index was and they found that cut, the high end was 25. Well, Eric decided, well, that's people who've been in the gym for two years. There's plenty of people who've been going to the gym for two years who aren't making gains with a Z. And, um, you know, let's look at a more like advanced population. So uh, Division One football players and found that the the average was like a 25. Was that, is yeah, that correct? Yeah, we looked at D1 um, football in both like our conference um, and just some bigger conferences. And then we also looked at D2. And found that, right. yeah, for, for, so obviously you can't, we don't know whether any of them were taking steroids, but right. based on the number of people over 25, it was very likely that, it, 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 that you can be natural at a higher fat-free mass index than 25. Hmm. Right. So you hear all that, all you haters out there, my fat-free <laughs> mass index of 27 is legit. So take that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but I, I think that's, that's a great example, and if you could speak to this, of why it's so important if you're going to run a study that you test what you actually want to test. Because if you want to say, okay, how do I find the natural limit, quote unquote, for natural bodybuilders, right? And you go out and you go to a gym and you just take people who've been lifting for two years, well, you're not answering the question, right? Yeah. Like you're, you're, you're looking at, okay, for the average gym goer, what's a what seems to be the limit of what they'll obtain? And that would be a more reasonable question. And I'm sure you see this all the time, Abby, of uh, studies that like the the media will extrapolate the results to a certain population and you look at it and say, that's not what that study says at all. Yeah. Well, especially with supplements, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and um, I, th I, I tell people like when you're examining a study, one of the ways to tell if it's a good study is look at the design of the study. Did it actually answer what they said they wanted to answer? That may sound really basic, but there's plenty of studies I've seen where they say, hey, this is our proposal and hypothesis, and the methods they used did not answer their question. Well, that, and I think there's so many things, and I know you are entrenched in this lane, but there's so much science that goes on to science that people aren't aware of. Um, and even with data that's published now, like you have to – you have to know, like, is it the appropriate design, right? Is it, were there appropriate controls? Is it coming from a lab that has published, you know, like, is it, a, is, do they follow good clinical practice guidelines? Like, were there IRB, you know, like things that, you know, and even was it an epidemiological study or was it an yes. intervention? You know, like, so the media does a good job of just taking whatever they want from, you know, science. Yeah. There's a lot of things that you need to identify to be able to know if it's good or bad science. Well, an example that I, I like to use because I, you know, my my shtick is protein metabolism. That's what I. That's my wheelhouse. And uh, there was a study. Of, this is back in like the late '90s or early 2000s. But people would use it to say that casein was superior to whey. And the study, what they did was they looked at whole body protein metabolism, and they fed um, whey versus casein, and uh, they they normalized the leucine content of each. So they fed more casein than whey to equalize the leucine contents. Mm -hmm. 
And they said that, oh, look, this was more whole body protein synthesis. It's more anabolic. Well, first off, I don't know anybody that eats based on leucine content. I mean, you can argue that we should. But if you're going to standardize, isn't the story that whey at 13 grams less total protein was almost as anabolic as casein? <laughs> um, that when I saw that study, that's what I thought. And further, you're looking at whole body protein metabolism. That's not actually answering the question of muscle. Whole body protein metabolism is much more influenced by gut tissue turnover since gut turns over at about 50 to 80% per day versus skeletal muscle, which is like a half to 1% per day. So I always tell people like if you just if – you, now if you didn't know anything about protein metabolism and you just read studies and there's nothing wrong with that, but you wouldn't have really a way of knowing if that was legit or not legit. And so that's why – Again, like we were saying, it's important as researchers to sit down and say, okay, is the study actually answering what we, we want it to answer? And Lehman was actually really good about that. Like I can't tell you how many times Lehman held my feet to the fire when he, go, when he would say, that's not a good study design. And to clarify for the listeners, Don Lehman is, was your faculty advisor? Yeah, that's correct. At, yeah. Um, at Illinois. Right. Yeah, and, and he was – very good about that. I remember one time he dropped a research study on, on, on my table and he goes, Lane, I want you to review this and tell me what's wrong with it. Or no, no. He said, I want you to review this study for me and let, and let me give me your feedback. And so I came back and I kind of gave him my feedback on everything. He goes, okay. Now tell me what, what was wrong with their study design? And I'm like, uh, you know. And then he broke down everything that they did wrong incorrectly and like, you know, it was really useful. So we would do that. We kind of like do that 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 practice all the time you know and it really actually made me better at like pick, figuring out weaknesses in my own research design i think that's such a valuable skill with uh interpreting research because i think especially nowadays and uh becoming more and more of a problem i feel like where um people who don't know enough about science or how to interpret research they kind of just blindly read the abstracts and just accept it as is without yep. going into the nuances of, is this an actual, do we just accept everything this is saying? And it mm. actually reminds me of a post that Dr. Brad Schoenfeld just made yesterday. I don't know, uh, Dr. Abby, if you follow him on Facebook, but he was posting about how there was a recent survey of researchers saying that all, pretty much all in agreement that science is poorly communicated to the public. And I completely agree with that. And I feel like the problem is that many of us are, are um, one, maybe a lot of us are you know ignorant to an extent, yes, but others of us are really intimidated by science you know all the numbers all that is really can be scary for a lot of people um do you face a lot of these frustrations dr abby with maybe the studies you conduct being misinterpreted or having trouble getting the word out there about your findings well yeah and i think um i mean depending on who what scientists you talk to like part of the reason i went into this field was to be able to translate science into you know general public but um, it's kind of hard to do, to be honest, like, um, it's, it's doing, you know, things like this that are helpful and, you know, speaking about at different places. But when you're trying to perfect being a good researcher and, you know, do, do data like that is very time consuming. And so to be able to translate it, like, it's not important to some scientists because it's, that's not how they're, you know, valued or they don't value that. Now for me, it's really important, but I will say that it's, it's somewhat difficult to get it to the right outlets. And so, um, yeah, like I try and do certain things and, and love to do that, but it, it, there are, it's difficult sometimes to translate it, even if you want to. 
but it's so important. Like to me, it's not science unless it's you know in the hands of people that'll use it. Right. And like if to be honest, don't nobody's going to read a scientific article, right? Or not very many people. Sure. Right. Um, yeah, I think I think one of the problems is um, the the more you try to make it palatable for the public, the more of the nuance you're going to lose, right? Because you have to generalize if you're going to bring it to the public. Um, but the more you generalize, the more of the nuance and context you lose. And the more no, of the context. That's true. But I think, like, I, I mean, I think being a researcher in academia, you, you kind of have a different battle to fight, right? Like, I'm judged by, in my job of how many papers I publish and, you know, at what impact and kind of the impact of the science. But personally, like, that's not very fulfilling, right? Like, I want to be able to, to, take my specific studies and I don't need to generalize them, but I want to tell, you know, people what they mean and how they, they can impact them, right, in a very specific manner. But that's more time and, and a lot of times there's not an outlet to do that. Now, there are some, right, but it's very limited in some of that translation. So then you find these internet gurus and people that kind of have time or their job is to just generalize the research and that's where a lot of the content is coming from. You know, I think that's where the role of, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, especially since I'm, um, Dr. Abby, I know I mentioned before the, today's call that, you know, I'm going back to school in, in two weeks to get my master's in psychology. And part of the reason I want to do that is one, obviously my, my main interest is in behavioral health psychology, but two, I am one of those people who is currently um, relatively intimidated by science and I want to be able to under read a paper and understand everything that I'm reading understand the statistics behind it and come to my own conclusions um, but I I understand you know it's not an easy endeavor per se and I see there are three camps in the science world uh, there's the, the 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 researchers the academics who are you know waist deep in actually conducting the studies and writing up the papers then you have the general public these are like everyday mainstream people who don't know anything about science, but they want to know, you know, well, they're the ones saying, well, Dr. Oz says this, Dr. Oz says that. And then you have the middle men um, who I see as people like online, especially nowadays, online fitness people, people like Lane who have a strong uh, online presence. And, you know, there is some overlap, someone like Lane, between being a researcher and being uh, one of those communicators. But we need people who can take the research and say, maybe that otherwise would not get a lot of looks, not get mm -hmm. a lot of eyeballs on it, or not, not, not a lot of people know about it. And they'll say, hey guys, I want you guys to, uh, I want to bring light to this study. Here's what it means in um, layman's terms, not, doc, don, not Don Layman, but capital L, layman. Um, in layman's terms that everyone can understand, and here's what it means for you in practical terms. And I think that's one of the most um, missing aspects of the scientific community lately and I always worry well what if there's a really important study that comes out but no one knows about it there's <laughs> those all the time right yeah just, but yeah yeah there's definitely a, I mean depending on the population there's a definitely a need for that but I think that's somewhat what makes our you know what we do exciting because there's always new and old data to share right it's just do you have the time and the outlet to, to work on that right um, are there any current studies that you're working on in the field of maybe body comp or diet that you're allowed to talk about a little bit? Yeah, actually, the one that, there's this funny one that it's not funny, but um, I feel like didn't get any press, and I think it's one of the most impactful thus far. And it's looking at some. Um, I can send it to you. It's published. Uh, 
and it's looking at uh, different modalities, so interval training versus high-intensity resistance training versus aerobic exercise. Mm-hmm on caloric expenditure and fuel utilization, and then also looking at um, whether a a pre-dose of protein or pre-dose of carbohydrate influences metabolic rate and fuel utilization, and this is all done in women. Um, And it's pretty interesting because a lot of the data out there suggests, especially for females, that um, like fasted cardio is not the way to go, and actually um, if you consume protein, prior to exercise, and we're talking very little, like maybe 90 calories, um, you actually burn more calories um, like during and after your activity, and you end up burning or utilizing more fat for fuel. Interesting. Uh, and so we did that study that was published maybe a year or two ago, and that's really impactful because, you know, I mean, I think just most women um, will say, oh, I'm going to, you know, go do cardio fasted or, uh, I'll have a banana before I go work out. Right. And so it's just kind of putting some things in perspective. Mm. Yeah. I think I'd that's, love to see that. That's interesting. I'd like, and I would, what I'd really love to see and obviously like there's limitations on data because we don't have infinite money and infinite subjects and infinite labs, lab people. But I would love to see how that would further influence looking out like 24 hours of energy expenditure if that would still hold true. You know what I mean? Because what you tend to see sometimes is you burn more during exercise but then the body compensates by burning less the rest of the day, right? And so um, would that hold true or would that that maintain? Because if it maintains, then that's something that's a really useful tool. Yeah. We looked only um, an hour after exercise and then, I mean, honestly, the follow-up is to look more at – Chronically, so what happens if you do that for you know four weeks? What, what happens overall body composition and how does it actually impact you know fat mass and lean mass? But um, the initial data was pretty insightful. And then we always do some cool supplement studies. You know, there's we like I think have five projects going around right now. Like there's just a lot of um, that's the fun part about being having your own lab, right? You can do some really cool cool data. Um, so. Yeah. So yeah. speaking of that, like if you had like your like, give us like an idea of a, a dream study that you would love to carry out. If if funds were no issue, subjects were no issue, what what would you do? Oh my gosh, uh, well, I can't <laughs> tell you because somebody might steal it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I really like to do, um, and we've talked about this, Lane. I think really being able to. Um, analyze and get a better picture of some of this meta- metabolic adaptation, not so much in, in you know, physique competitors, because they kind of do it to themselves, like, I mean, right. in a good way, right? But, like, there's, I get so many women and a few men that are middle-aged and they've done everything they can and they're eating, you know, 900 calories and um, they aren't losing weight or, you know, they're they're just not making progress and they're really unhappy. So being able to... Um, do some stuff there, like really be able to investigate some hormonal profiles, genetic, like how can we help these people? And, and I'm sure you know somebody, like, you know, a lot of times they're like your in-laws or your family or, you know, and it's just sad to see yeah. people so miserable. Actually, I, I, I'm not going to say who because I respect their privacy, but um, the, I worked with a former, former very, 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 very well-known uh, WWE professional wrestler who, um, you know, through they basically had a diet the whole time. They were because they were always a little bit on the heavier side of not being shredded enough um, for what the organization wanted, and they were dieting chronically. 
And this is a person who probably has 250 pounds of lean body mass and they're maintaining their weight oh, at like 20, 2,200 calories a day. Oh, my that's goodness. crazy for, well, yeah. maybe not 200, probably like 230 pounds of lean body mass, but that's, that's a crazy low intake for that much lean body mass. Well, and I'll tell you, so I see, um, retired NFL athletes every week and do some nutrition and metabolism body comp stuff. And you would be surprised about how many of these overweight kind of obese retired players they're, you know, sustaining on, you know, have a ton of lean mass and not eating hardly anything. And it's just sad. Like you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't have to live your life that way. So I would do a study to help, help those people. And maybe I will in the future, but I think it's like science can be used, although, you know, there's good physique goals, but I feel like there's so many people living their lives, like not happy and it's driven by, you know, metabolic issues and just lack of knowledge that we can help them with. Dr. Abby, uh, that kind of reminds me of a question I want to ask you. Um, especially when you're uh, talking about your prep experience too, but now that now that Lane's brought up his former client, do you have? Uh, and I I think Lane, I want to know your answer as well. Do you have a lower limit, caloric limit, under which you do not recommend bringing your calories? And it, it, whether it's a body weight multiplier or or what, is there a certain point after you, which you say, okay, I'm not going to drop your calories any longer. Do you have to either stay here or we need to get you back up with your calories and get you healthy again? Well, I'll answer it from, I mean, I think you guys have a different perspective. You work with clients that, like, want to get lean. Like, I, I typically work with people, um, you know, that we're trying to get them healthy or, you know, they want to maybe want to be lean, but it's not imagine, uh, you know, it, physique is not a healthy sport per se. No. And so um, I, I typically never bring anybody below their resting metabolic rate. And if they're already there, then we try and bring them above that. Um because that's, you know, we can measure that and that's really what you need as a, as a general kind of what you need to basic physiological function, right? So um, it can't be healthy to be lower, lower than that. But I, again, work at a different endpoint than you all do. And um, resting metabolic rate, that's something you measure beforehand? Or yeah, so estimate. we can measure resting metabolic rate uh, using like indirect calorimetry or CO2 expiration. So we can actually, or you can estimate it with lean mass, but we'll typically measure it um, using a device uh, to, to kind of see what is, how many calories is somebody burning? Because it's interesting. A lot of people will be like, oh, my metabolism is so slow. But when you actually measure it, it's really not. And it's other things that they're doing or, you know, or it is yeah. slow and then you can kind of go from there. Or maybe it's actually you're just eating too much. Or you're, yeah, or you're eating too much. You're in denial. Right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, Abby, go ahead and finish your thought. No, no, I'm finished, yeah. I'm okay, finished. so I don't have like, it's one of the, it's a really interesting question. I, I wouldn't say I have a hard limit. Um, what I would say is that it depends on the person and it depends on the circumstance. And so, um, you know, in general, I really don't like going too far under 1,200 for anybody. Um but that being said, if I've got somebody like, say, oh, I don't know, Dr. Abby Smith-Ryan, who's you know, a couple weeks out from a show and is really, really close to being lean enough and we need to um, basically sprint to the finish, then I'm okay with a short period of time where that person has a pretty low amount of calories. What I'm not okay with is you know, somebody's eight weeks out, they still have you know, 20 pounds of fat to lose and they're at 1,200 calories, right? And they're maintaining their body weight. Now, now – we need to uh, we need to come up with a different plan because this isn't working, right? 
So I think it just depends on context and um, and uh, the individual and the situation. Yeah, and I think Lane, you had like I, I know when we got to that point, like, and I know you guys all do this. Most coaches do is like, if you're not ready, we can look at another show, you know. But um, sometimes your body just I don't know. Your body is an amazing machine that you can't control, <laughs> right? You just right, gotta yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think we what we did was we had a really frank conversation. I said, hey, as long as you understand the ramifications of this and you are okay with this with X Y Z, then we can do it. And you explained why, you know, based on your history, based on, you know, how low calories you'd been before, that you thought you'd be fine and you were okay with what was going to happen and all those sorts of things. And so since we were able to have that frank conversation and our expectations were equal, um, it was fine. Yeah, and I think, you know, people are, some people, and I know some people you work with are doing it like it's their passion and, you know, they're trying to get a pro card. I was like trying to match a fear. Like I hate being mm-hmm. in a bathing suit, right? Like, so it was <laughs> just like working on different, you know, like everybody has their different goals. So it's, it's all good. It's, you know, you gotta, you gotta work with individual. Would you say Dr. Abby that today, uh, what, so how long ago was your show? Uh, two years ago. Three okay, years. Would, year, you, yeah. would you say that now, um, you are physically very healthy, metabolically at a normal uh, level, and you're able to consume regular amounts of food without blowing up and without having facing any um, physical, you know, complications. Oh yeah, I mean, I was right after the show, um, but it's been fun. So I had a baby actually almost a year ago, um, and it, it was fun to kind of um, like somewhat reverse diet through pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and like, you know, lift heavy, like I squatted the day before I delivered and I delivered. (laughs) I love that. um, You hear that all you chicken leg guys complaining (laughs) about doing squats and getting out of leg day? You know, I mean, so that was fun. And then even after, so like, it was fun to kind of, um, so, you know, I work in a lab and I did DEXAs and body comp kind of post year Mm -hmm. and, um, kind of manipulated my macronutrients and and that's even fun to see it's been fun to kind of play with different phases of the body right and so yeah I mean yes I can eat whatever I want and be fine but we all have physique goals and so it's fun to and I think people forget this like you should periodize your nutrition like you do your training right you shouldn't always be um, tracking macronutrients and trying mm-hmm. to be the leanest as possible. Like you, you should periodize that just like you do your training. Um, and I think that makes it more fun and sustainable and um, it gives you different goals. I actually really love that. You should periodize your nutrition just like you do your training. I'm going to quote you on that. <laughs> you should. It's so much more fun that way because that keeps exciting. You have different goals. Do- Dr. Linicky would tell you just, just max every day. And, uh, <laughs> So just eat as much food as you can every day. <laughs> Love <Yeah>. you, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah. I think one thing that, um, you know, like I've played around with too, just knowing how me- metabolically adapted I am is like for a long time I took all cardio out. Like I just stopped doing cardio to see what would happen. And then even now for I have a little one, I don't have a lot of time to train. I just do intervals and heavy lifting, like, and I keep it short, like just kind of changing things up and um identifying or kind of playing to your weaknesses per se right like not always doing what's comfortable and not always doing what you're used to sure. can really uh, be fun to see what happens with your body 
if you're a nerd like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, I think at the end of the day, like what we do, it's all science. It's all experimentation, whether it's an N of one or N of a hundred, you know, and we can observe things and, and uh, make adjustments based on how we respond. Okay. And we're driven, right? Like you, you every, we're, we're all goal driven, right? Is And so if you are able to set different goals and, um, different things to shoot for. One, it, it keeps the motivation factor high and it keeps you kind of, you know, moving forward. I agree. So, anything else you got for uh, Dr. Abby? Nope. Uh, just curious as to what your next aspirations are. Yes, um, that was going to be my question as well. Professionally, but also uh, regards with, with, with your fitness. Do you have any, I know you're probably not going to compete again anytime soon, but do you have any like fitness goals that you're aspiring towards right now? Um, yeah, so I guess fitness wise, um, my goal was to really be leaner than before I had a baby. <laughs> um, and I, I got there and actually it's funny because I, and I'll, I'll, this is just a funny quick story is like, I, you know, I have the tools to measure my body composition, but I was kind of going by the scale and I was, you know, measuring every three months or so. Mm-hmm. And I got to this point and I was like, damn, I wish I was, like, lighter. I want to be lighter, right? And so I finally had my grad student just do a quick DEXA scan, and it was like, well, duh, there's a reason you're not lighter. You just gained six pounds of lean mass, right? Wow. Like, so That's it's a like, lot. Yeah, but it's just funny, right? Because it's like you. I know that I the scale is not the best way, but until you, like – so it's all, it's all good. So, um, yeah, I think just maintaining – leanness and I want to have more more babies so <laughs> that's my physiological goal and it's interesting right I think this is another component um so I'm still nursing and there's a lot of people say that you can't be lean and you can nurse your child mm-hmm. at the same time um or it's actually a hydration component so it's been fun to kind of maintain uh the nursing kind of mother side but also um, meet my fitness goals to a happy medium so you know it's just kind of going with the different life stages and, and making goals that way are there uh what are the different nutrition recommendations as far as people in your stage of life when you're trying to nurse and shed body fat at the same time you know there is absolutely no research um no way. which is kind of the fun the fun part about it and so um it's just really listening to your body. Interesting. One day maybe I'll research that. But right now the research is uh, both on exercise and nutrition during pregnancy is really bad. And um, mm. most of your, like the doctors don't know either. You kind of have to do your own homework. Right. And many times I, I'm, I'm told a lot of doctors will just say don't, don't resistance train at all. Yeah, they're getting better. But yeah, the it's pretty, um, but really the only guideline is don't do bench press because it can, mm. you know, Kind of the order, but really the the guidelines are pretty loose, and so definitely need more research in that area. Cool. And uh, really quick, I was curious because you're a, a working professional, but also now a mother. How have you found uh, it to be juggling, you know, being a new mom and still keeping up with with your professional uh, responsibilities? Um, you gotta find it, you know, I'm lucky. I, I love what I do. And so you gotta just, um, yeah, you gotta find passion in what you do. So, and, and I think the other thing um, that I do is incorporate my son into a lot of things. So, you know, we'll do intervals or, you know, bike riding or, you know, I was jogging in the stroller a couple weeks after he was born. And so just, you know, incorporating your whole life into, into your passion. 
I like that. Yes, I love that as well. I think that's uh, very good advice. Well, Dr. Abby, thank you so much for joining us. Um, for students who may be interested in coming to your lab, uh, is there any way to contact you that you prefer or um, any kind of online presence where can people find you or are yeah. you just a hermit in the lab and don't want anybody to bother you? <laughs> no, um, I, I'm always looking for good master students and it's fully funded. Um, the PhD spot's a little bit harder to fill, but um, yeah, I, I don't have a website. Maybe I need some help with that. Um, but I, uh, yeah, email, Twitter, Instagram, I'm on all of those. So yeah, happy to, and I love... What is your Instagram and Twitter and... It's just A. Smith Ryan. For a. Both of them. Smith Ryan. Okay. Be sure to yeah. plug that. A. Smith Ryan. Um, I love training young people. So um, even if there's just general questions, I'm happy to help. Oh, Abby, you're a young person yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think there's so much I wish I would have known back then that I know now. I know. I'm just trying to score brownie points. That's all. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> you. You're welcome. I have a lot more wrinkles than I used to. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, you've been listening to Physique Science. Uh, until next time, I'm your host, Lane Norton, for my co-host, Sohi Lee. Um, we'll see you next time. All right. Thanks, guys.